Searching the Scriptures with Watchman Alexander, Episode 9. Is everybody in the world going to die before someone finds the answer? Do I have to remind you that theory is the beginning of solution? What are we up against? Is it a dangerous thing? All I've ever known to be true is a lie. I didn't say it would be easy. I just said it would be the truth. Welcome to Searching the Scriptures with Watchman Alexander, where we break away from religious systems and man-made dogma to learn the Word of God from an independent Hebraic perspective. And now your host, the prophecy buff who tackles the tough stuff, Alexander Lawrence. Hello and shalom. The hour is late, the time is short, and the storm is coming. So this is your opportunity for a systems check. I'm here to wake up the sleeping servants of Yahweh God and equip them for the last days. I do that by teaching discernment, by pouring over prophecies, by treating the infection of Mystery Babylon in the church, and by giving you courage. My book is Leviathan's Ruse, the comprehensive guide to the battle between good and evil. My website is watchmanalexander.com. I have a blog on that website that I update twice a week, so if you're interested in having more teachings than what you get here on the One Hour Podcast, I recommend uh, subscribing to the RSS feed of that blog so you'll get updated anytime I post or bookmark the blog and just make sure you come back and visit frequently. Today's show is part two of a discussion about which prophecies await fulfillment, which oracles in the Bible have yet to come to pass. We left off talking about the time of global chaos that is soon to be upon us and how the man of perdition, which we call the Antichrist, will be a Jewish military genius who's going to help a European coalition, the final incarnation of the Greco-Roman Empire, to overcome the lion, bear, and leopard empires in order to become the final Babylon, also known as the New World Order. Let me just take a minute to reiterate and sort of flesh out some of those things that I just mentioned, because it can be a lot to try and take in if you haven't studied this before. So in the book of Daniel, which is an amazing prophetic book, Daniel has a couple of different dreams. Nebuchadnezzar, a king of Babylon at the time that Daniel was there, also had a dream and Daniel interpreted that. But in one of these dreams, Daniel sees four kingdoms or four beasts representing kingdoms that come up out of a raging sea. There's a beast with the wings of a lion, a bear that's raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth. There's a leopard that has four heads and two pairs of wings. And then there's a fourth kingdom that's not described as any particular animal, but it is said to have iron teeth and great power and to be very fearsome. The sea in this vision stands for the Gentile people, the masses who are not a part of God's kingdom. This is explained actually in the book of Revelation, not in Daniel, but an angel tells John in Revelation that the sea that Mystery Babylon sits on is representative of all the Gentile peoples. The fact that the sea is churning tells us that this is a time of great calamity, of global chaos. And so these four beasts are most likely at odds with one another. They're most likely fighting each other and probably other kingdoms which are not represented, which are lesser kingdoms in this dream or during the time period that this dream is portraying. As for the identity of the beast, it's popularly taught that the beast kingdoms here are kingdoms that existed at the time of Daniel and beyond, that they stretch down through history, just like the different metals in the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. Nebuchadnezzar's statue is representative of kingdoms that are sequential in time over many hundreds of years. And the idea is that these beasts of Daniel's later vision are representative of the same thing, but we're just being shown some different details about them. We're getting some characteristics that we didn't receive from the statue dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. I reject that idea for a number of reasons. And if you're interested in those reasons, you can go check out a blog post I wrote 
in mid to late August. If you go to the archives for August on my website, you'll be able to find that. Um, the graphic on the front is of a lion with wings and a bear in the midst of a stormy sea. So it's pretty easy to find. And then you'll, uh, you'll get to see what my reasoning is for rejecting the normal sequential view of things and embracing instead a contemporaneous view, meaning that all of these nations exist at the same time or almost the same time in history. They're all part of the same era, as opposed to existing one after the other down through the years. So I believe these beasts are yet future to us. However, I think they are in our near future, not our far future. This time of global chaos is almost upon us. In fact, I think we're in the initial stages of it right now. And really what this comes down to is World War III. These are the main players in World War III, and this is going to be the mother of all the wars up to that point. The fourth beast kingdom in Daniel's dream is going to take over the other three kingdoms. It's going to overcome and assimilate them. The reason we know this is because we can look in Revelation and see that John has a vision of the same beast, but this time it's a chimeric combination of lion, bear, and leopard, those same characteristics of Daniel's first three beasts. So the fourth beast, the terrible one, comes out on top, and it becomes the world superpower. Now, as to how we can be sure that the fourth beast kingdom is the end-time manifestation of the Greco-Roman Empire, like I said earlier, we need to look at Daniel chapter 8, because there's a few verses in there that explain this to us pretty well. We're going to read together verses 20 to 25, and let me explain first what's going on here. Daniel has had a different vision of some beast kingdoms. These are not the same as the kingdoms that he saw in his other dream. This involves a ram and a goat and no other animals. In the dream, the ram is living the high life. He's in the place of authority. But then the ram is KO'd by this mighty goat from the west that has a single great horn. And this goat approaches in a, almost a supernatural way where he's just flying over the ground. He's not even running on it. He's swiftly flying towards the ram, and with his one great horn, he takes out this ram uh, in a single and swift blow. Well, Daniel had no idea what this was about. He was confused, so he prays for an answer. He wants to know the interpretation, and he receives that uh, because an angel comes to him with the task of explaining it to him. So Daniel chapter 8, verse 20 to 25, is the angel speaking to Daniel. He says this, the ram which you saw that had the two horns, they are the kings of Medea and Persia. The rough male goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. As for that which was broken in the place where four stood up, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not with his power. Okay, let's stop right there. Let me explain what he's saying. The horns of the ram are the kings of Medea and Persia who ruled during Daniel's lifetime and who were, whose empire was the superpower at that time. It had taken that role from Babylon. So Medea and Persia ruled for a while, but then this new power comes from the West, and it's in the form of a goat in Daniel's dream. Well, that goat has one horn, and the horn between his eyes, the angel says, is the first king of this new kingdom. And that first king we know from history was Alexander the Great. Alexander made incredibly swift, you might say supernatural progress in his war campaign from Greece throughout the Near East. He went all the way to Mongolia, and who knows how much farther he would have spread if he hadn't died prematurely. But he did die, and in the dream, that is depicted as the horn being broken, and in its place, four other horns came up. Well, we know the story. Alexander the Great died. Something made him sick, and he died while he was still young, and his empire was divided up into four. The angel tells Daniel that the four kingdoms that shall stand up or shall grow out of Alexander the Great's nation would not have his power, and that was absolutely true, that the four kingdoms that came out of Alexander's kingdom 
were lesser. Picking back up in verse 23, we read, In the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce face and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. His power shall be mighty, but not with his own power. And he shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper and do his pleasure. And he shall destroy the mighty ones and the holy people. Through his policy, he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. And he shall magnify himself in his heart. And in their security shall he destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. That's the end of verse 25. Now, there was a lot in that little passage, and it was about a character that we have not seen yet in history. So what has happened here? We've gone from something that we know happened in the past to suddenly being told about a character that wasn't even in the dream. The angel has just skipped many, many years to get to the juicy stuff. The phrase that I want us to zero in on here is at the beginning of verse 23. It says, in the latter time of their kingdom. Depending on the English translation, you're going to see kingdom or kingdoms, plural, or you're going to see reign or rule. So in the latter time of the rule of these characters, plural, we're going to see transgressors come up to the full and we're going to find that a king of fierce face or fierce countenance starts to take over the world. But this fierce king, we learn, is going to be broken without hand when he stands up against the prince of princes. In other words, it's not going to be another man. It's not going to be the might of a mortal that takes him out. It's going to be something supernatural that takes him out, which we happen to know because we know the end of the story is the sword out of the mouth of Yeshua. That's what's going to take out the Antichrist. So we're presented with a very interesting transition here because the four kingdoms that came after Alexander the Great's kingdom are in some form surviving until the time of the Antichrist. As strange as that sounds, it actually corresponds perfectly with Nebuchadnezzar's dream vision. In his dream, he saw kingdoms one after the other that all made up one image. They were really just different phases of one unbroken thing. And it started with Nebuchadnezzar's empire of Babylon, and it went to the Medo-Persian empire, which was represented by a chest and arms of silver. And those two arms represent the two kings, one of Medea and one of Persia, just as we saw in Daniel's dream, the two horns on the ram represent the two kings of Medea and Persia. And then the statue proceeds on to the belly and thighs of brass, which represents Greece, that he goat that took out the ram. And then we see the legs of iron. So the metal keeps getting stronger as we go down the statue. It starts off soft with gold and then it proceeds to iron, which is very hard and it will crush everything else, every other type of metal. And uh, the two legs represent the eastern and western divisions of the empire of Rome. Now, Rome dwindled over time. It didn't just fall in a day. It actually tapered out over a long period of time. In the same way, the legs, which start large at the top where your thighs are, uh, they shrink. They dwindle down to the ankles where the bone is smaller and there's a lot less muscle. The fact that the midriff of brass proceeds right into the legs of iron tells us that those four divisions of Alexander the Great's kingdom, uh, the quadrants of the Grecian Empire, didn't just die off. They just changed form a little bit, but they morphed or evolved into the Roman Empire. And Rome never really died off. Its traits are still with us today. In the way that we run our political system and our architecture, in our language, which evolved from Latin, uh, in our sciences and humanities, all of these things come from the Romans, which came from the Greeks, which came from the Near East civilizations before them. This is why the angel could say to Daniel what he said about the latter days of the kingdoms that came from Alexander the Great's kingdom, because their four quadrants of the uh, kingdom of Greece just changed into Rome and Rome survived. And so 
the latter manifestation of the Roman Empire is the one in which uh, the wicked will come to a full. They will reach their apex of wickedness. And this man, the king of fierce countenance, will rise up and fight against the prince of princes, which is the Messiah. The feet of Nebuchadnezzar's statue represent the final form of the Roman Empire, what it will be in the last days. And the ten toes are representative of the ten kings that will rule at the end, the ten kings of the New World Order, five from the Eastern Division and five from the Western Division. Now, we don't know exactly which nations those are going to be, and I don't think it really matters. We'll know it when we see it. But we just need to be prepared for the fact that this European coalition is going to take the form of ten regions or ten divisions, each with a potentate over it. Note that in Daniel 7, verse 8, Daniel sees the little horn rise up among the ten horns after the fourth beast kingdom has already been trampling and devouring everything. So the little horn is the Antichrist. And we just said that the ten horns are the ten kings that will rule over these ten regions of the final Roman Empire. But Daniel sees that this little horn only comes up and displaces three of those ten horns after the beast is already trampled and devoured, because the the narrative says that after he saw how terrible this beast was, then he was meditating on what the horns might mean. And that's when he saw the little horn come up among the ones that were already on the beast. So the Antichrist will not show up on the scene as a New World Order potentate. The New World Order will already be cranking before the Antichrist consolidates three regions of that empire. The fact that he is a horn does mean that he's a ruler of something, but he's a little horn. He rules on a small scale initially. So based on what we just read in Daniel, the man of perdition is probably the king of a little nation like Israel. I want to take you to the book of 2nd Barak. Second Baruch is an amazing prophetic book. It's in the Apocrypha, not in the Protestant Bible canon. It was in the original King James Version, though, before they removed some of the books. But Second Baruch confirms Daniel's vision. So I want to start reading in chapter 39, verse 1, and we're going to go through verse 7. Here's what we read. And Yahweh answered and said to me, Baruch, this is the explanation of the vision which you have seen. As you have seen the great forest surrounded by high and rocky mountains, this is the world. Behold, the days will come when this kingdom that destroyed Zion once will be destroyed, and that it will be subjected to that which will come after it. This again will also be destroyed after some time, and another, a third, will rise, and also that will possess power in its own time and will be destroyed. After that, a fourth kingdom arises, whose power is harsher and more evil than those which were before it, And it will reign a multitude of times, like the trees of the plain, and it will rule the times and exalt itself more than the cedars of Lebanon. And the truth will hide itself in this, and all who are polluted with unrighteousness will flee to it like the evil beasts flee and creep into the forest. And it will happen when the time of its fulfillment is approaching, in which it will fall, that at that time the dominion of my anointed one, which is like the fountain and the vine, will be revealed. Okay. So in this explanation that Yahweh has given to the prophet Barak, he's telling him that there are going to be four kingdoms that come. Just like we saw in Daniel's vision of the four beasts and in Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the four divisions of the statue. Yahweh tells Barak that the fourth kingdom is going to be the most powerful and the harshest one and the most evil, which is exactly what Daniel saw when he witnessed the fourth beast Uh, with the fearsome iron teeth trampling and crushing everything. And Yahweh says to Barak that this kingdom, which was Rome, will reign a multitude of times. And that's very true because Rome has lasted for over two millennium now. Yahweh goes on to say that it is at the end of this long reign of the fourth kingdom that his anointed one, the Messiah or the Mashiach, will show up. So there you go. There's our confirmation that Rome never died and that the wicked ones, the transgressors, will come into their fullness. They will reach their climax in the fourth kingdom. 
That's why in verse six, we see that those who are polluted with unrighteousness will flee to it. They will flee to the last manifestation of Rome. They will love the new world order. Obviously, disciples of Messiah are not going to love it. They're going to hate it. And they need to flee from that empire if they can. We need to flee from the city of Babel, certainly, because in the book of Revelation, we're told specifically to come out of that city. But also, we should probably avoid the whole kingdom because that's where all of the wicked will be congregating. That's where all of the believers in Messiah are going to be cut off ruthlessly. So we really probably don't want to be around there if we can help it. This is probably a good place to mention the fact that the Antichrist is not going to be headquartered in Babel. The city of Babel is going to be the religious and economic headquarters in the last days, but it's not going to be the military headquarters the, or the um, just the home base of the Antichrist. He and the other kings are at some point going to annihilate Babel. They are going to utterly destroy the city of Babel and it will never again be inhabited. No one will even go close to it. It will just be a place for unclean spirits and unclean animals. Now, whether that's Rome or some newly built coastal city or something else, I don't know. Some people teach that Jerusalem is the end time city of Babel. And I kind of see where they're coming from, but it can't be. Jerusalem will never be annihilated. And when I say annihilated, I mean it. The, the descriptions in the prophecies about the fall of Babylon leaves no doubt that she will be completely reduced to ashes. That will never happen to Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be invaded and oppressed in the last days, but it will not be annihilated. Also, Jerusalem's not a coastal city. And when we read Revelation 18, um, let's see, verses 17 through 19, we find that there's a lot of language that seems to describe a coastal city. Let me read it quickly. Every shipmaster and everyone who sails anywhere and mariners and as many as gain their living by sea stood far away and cried out as they looked at the smoke of her burning, saying, what is like the great city? They cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city in which all who had their ships in the sea were made rich by reason of her great wealth. For in one hour she is made desolate. So in this passage, we see the seagoing men and the ship owners and such are standing far off and they're weeping because they can't trade anymore. They can't bring their wares to the great city. Well, that being the case, the city must be fairly close to the sea, if not right on the coast. Otherwise, all this talk about the seafarers would be out of place. Okay, I think at this point, I probably need to explain what might seem like a contradiction in what I teach about the Antichrist. In the last episode, and at the beginning of this one, I mentioned the fact that I think that he's going to be the Antichrist, that is, is going to be the Messiah for the Jews. They're going to see him as being the promised anointed one. He's not. Obviously, their anointed one has already come and they missed it. They were blind to it. But they're going to think that this guy, remember when Yeshua said, I come in my father's name and you don't want to listen to me, you don't accept me, but another will come in his name and you're going to accept him. This is who he was talking about. He was talking about the false Messiah that would later come and the Jews would embrace him, even though they hadn't embraced Yeshua. What irony and uh, tragedy that is. But we're going to see the Jews accept Asher as their Messiah. And the only way that they will do that is if he fulfills many of the Messianic prophecies that they recognize within the Tanakh, within the what we would call the Old Testament. So Asher will have to be seemingly from the line of David. He'll have to be a Judean and he's going to have to come from Bethlehem. And there are other prophecies like that, that he's going to have to appear to fulfill in order to be a valid contender for the position of Messiah. At least that's what I think, but you never know. Maybe the Jewish people will somehow disregard those things, will somehow uh, reason them away as, you know, maybe they weren't messianic prophecies. Maybe they're 
misreading the scriptures or something like that. But certainly they would only accept a Messiah who was actually Jewish. You know, that I think has to be the biggest prerequisite. So in Leviathan's Ruse, I teach that Asher is the dead king of Babel, who's going to return as the Antichrist. His remains were preserved so that he could be brought back later. The question becomes, how could an ancient king who lived before Abraham be a contender for the title of Messiah for the Jews, since he wasn't Hebrew and he existed before the Messianic prophecies were ever written? I think the most reasonable answer is that Asher will not be resurrected like Yeshua was. He will not be brought back in the body that he had previously. We're going to recover Asher's genetic material, either from his mummy or from the efflux that the Egyptians said that they saved under the plain of Giza. And once we recover it, we're going to use it to create a zygote. And I believe that that zygote is going to be implanted in a virgin Jewish woman. So Asher, when he comes back, will be able to claim to be of the line of David. He will be able to claim to be from Bethlehem, and I'm sure he'll claim to fulfill other prophecies as well. And it will look legitimate, but it will all be a setup. Actually, I believe that the implantation has already occurred. I believe we've already found Asher's remains, and very wealthy occultists have paid to have the DNA reconstructed and implanted in someone who is going to give birth this month. I believe that the celestial sign that is going to be happening on September 23rd, which seems to be the sign given in Revelation chapter 12, is actually the sign of the anti-Messiah, not the sign of the Messiah or the rapture or anything like that. I think it's um, because it's slightly different. I think it's the sign of the imposter. But that's something that I've blogged about and I've spoken about on other people's shows several times, so I'm not going to go into all that right now. In any case, that should answer the question of how can the Antichrist be Jewish and at the same time be this ancient king from early Mesopotamia. Hold it right there, Watchman. Get a cup of tea. It's time for Everything Under the Sun when we take three minutes to hear from the Watchman's wife, Amanda Lawrence. This week, I wanted to touch base on something the Watchman said several episodes ago. It was the episode about the prophetic dreams and visions that he and his mom have been shown. I think it was the last dream he talked about how he was walking and his ex-wife and current girlfriend told him that he couldn't go where they were heading. So this is striking in and of itself and had huge implications for Alex's life from then on. However, because I know that the girlfriend walking in that dream was me, it's even more impactful. At the time, I had yet to meet Alex's ex-wife and thought it strange she and I would be going anywhere together. She was already a believer and had been for many years. You see, when that dream was given to Alex, I was not following Jesus. I called myself a Christian as I was raised in the Methodist church and believed Jesus was who he said he was, but there was no relationship, no intimacy, and no connection with him. So this was close to the time when I started surrendering my life to Yeshua about five years ago. This dream was also a prophecy for my spiritual walk. It told me that I would end up following Yeshua and would end up spending eternity with him. Alex played an instrumental role in leading me to Jesus. He led me through prayers, encouraged me to read the Bible, and brought me along to his church. There were also some rough times early in our relationship, and they too played a big part in getting me to ask God to enter my life. So what the dream says to me, though, is, that I would end up following Jesus regardless of Alex heeding this warning or not. Remember, he woke up feeling like his days were very numbered. I'm not going to even touch on the debate of free will versus predestination. Again, I only have three minutes and this isn't my podcast. But I will say that even if all things don't happen for a reason, Yahweh is able to use all things for his reasons. I do believe that God would have drawn me to him through some other avenue if Alex wasn't the one to guide me. And that gives me hope that God has a story for me. He sees me right now. He may have given Alex that dream, not only to get his behind in gear, but also so that several years later, the walking girlfriend would do a little part on a podcast to reach someone else with encouragement. 
God is a master builder of our dreams, our stories, and our futures. He's using it all. So I want to remind you to listen for him. It might be something small like offering a smile to someone or taking the time to call and check on a friend. Something you hear, read, see, or experience may seem insignificant now, and it might be the very thing that you will look back on and recognize as a turning point. We don't know how he'll use it for his good and his glory, but we can take heart and take faith and believe that he will. That's it for this week. I wanted to kind of pull a watchman and say that if anyone has a topic that they would like me to cover or talk about for a few minutes, uh, you can reach me at thewatchmanswife at gmail.com. Good job, honey. And speaking of honey, that break was just long enough for me to have a cup of traditional English breakfast tea with honey in it. Now we can talk about Daniel's 70 weeks or 70 Shemitahs, because the weeks in Daniel chapter 9 are referring to years and every seven years is called a Shemitah. So we can call this the 70 Shemitahs to be a little bit more accurate um, because these are not weeks of days. And it can be easy to get confused about that. There's some people that want to break this up into other types of weeks, like they want to make part of it about uh, a week of days and they want to make the other part of it about a week of years. And then they might want to make part of it about a week of Shemitahs, in other words, a Jubilee period. But there's nothing in the context of this chapter that would suggest to us that we can do that. There's no a hint or, or delineation of any kind that would make us think, oh, we're supposed to treat one interval of weeks as being this kind of week and then the other interval as being another kind of week. It's used consistently. The word is used by the angel without any variations. So we really should take all of these instances of weeks to mean Shemitahs. All right, let's go ahead and read the passage together. This is Jan Daniel 9 verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed on your people and on your holy city to finish disobedience and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Wow, that's a lot of stuff. I'm just pausing right there. So over the course of 70 Shemitahs from the lifetime of Daniel, actually from that very moment that Daniel was being spoken to probably, until the end of the age, um, all of these things would be accomplished. And the reason I say it's the end of the age is because he's talking about finishing things up, wrapping things up. Um, all of the, the tension of the storyline that has been going on is going to be resolved. And so it's just pretty obvious that this is talking about coming to that climactic point where everything hits a resolution. The angel says to Daniel, your people. So it's the Jews that are in view here. And I don't necessarily mean modern Jews, but the Judeans, the people of the southern kingdom at the time of Daniel and before. They're the ones that we're concerned with here. And within the 70 weeks or 70 Shemitahs, they're going to finish disobedience. That has not happened yet. So the 70 weeks have to still be going. They're going to make an end of sins. That has not happened yet. Um, reconciliation for iniqui iniquity will occur. Well, that has happened. Uh, Yeshua has provided that, but they haven't accepted it yet. Most of them haven't. And everlasting righteousness is going to be brought in. Well, that certainly is future because Yeshua has to bring in the everlasting kingdom of righteousness and seal up vision and prophecy. That hasn't happened. There's still vision. There's still prophecy. Um, and we read elsewhere in the scriptures that during the millennium and beyond, there will be no prophecy. There will be no spirit of prophecy being given anymore. People will not have dreams and visions from the Lord. And if they get them, they're going to know that they were from an unclean spirit and they're going to keep it to themselves. They're going to deny that they even had a vision or a prophecy come to them because they know it's, uh, it's from something that's not good and it will be completely disallowed. People will be cut off immediately if they prophesy uh, because that spirit of prophecy... It's not going to be needed anymore at that point. And then the last thing the angel mentions is to anoint the most holy. Well, the most holy is talking about the, well, it could be two things. You know, we could be talking about 
the holy place of our hearts with us as the temple. Um, But because it comes at the very end of this list, I suspect that it's talking about the holy place in Jerusalem, that uh, Yeshua will go to sit in the holy place in the new tabernacle and the new temple during the millennium. And uh, that will be the anointing of that place. So this is definitely talking about the period from now to the end of the age. And the angel goes on to say, Know therefore and discern that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem to the anointed one, the prince, shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Okay, let's stop there for a second. Not long after Daniel's lifetime, the Jews were given permission by the Medo-Persian government to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild it. And they were even given resources with which to do this. From that point, there were going to be seven Shemitahs and 62 Shemitahs. So altogether 69 Shemitahs until this next phase would begin. And we're about to see during that time period of 69 Shemitahs what is going to happen. Let's keep reading. It shall be built again with street and moat, even in troubled times. After the 62 weeks, the anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end shall be with a flood. And even to the end shall be war. Desolations are determined. Okay, let's stop there. So it will be built again. It's talking about the city of Jerusalem. And it's going to have a street and a moat again. It's going to be restored, but it's also going to be a time of trouble. So it's not going to be a totally peaceful um, period of rebuilding. And then after the 62 weeks. Now, this is it's interesting because he mentions seven weeks and then he mentions 62 weeks. But he doesn't um, explicitly say what is going to happen during the seven weeks. But that's probably referring to the whole rebuilding time. And then this next period of 62 Shemitahs will occur. And um, after that period, the anointed one is going to be cut off. Well, that's definitely talking about the Messiah. He is the anointed one, uh, which is a phrase used elsewhere in prophecy about the Messiah. It's used in the book of Enoch when Enoch sees the pre-incarnate Messiah. He's called the anointed one or the elected one. And this character will be cut off and have nothing. Um, And that's what we see in the Gospels. We see the report of Yeshua being cut off from his people and from living. Um, He's brought to nothing. And he, I mean, he basically had nothing anyway, but he's brought to nothing and he does not possess the world yet. So the Jews believe that the Messiah was going to take over the world. He was going to be the ruler of everything. But that did not happen during the first coming. And that's why the angel points out that he shall have nothing because he's, he's telling us cryptically, but he's telling us ahead of time that the Messiah is not going to gain the world. He's going to have nothing. He won't be the ruler of anything physical on the earth at the time of his execution or beyond. And that's true today. He has nothing except his people, his people, are carrying out the mission. His people are possessing certain things in this world, but Yeshua himself does not possess it yet. He awaits the time when the father says, go and take what is yours, go and reign over the whole earth. That has not happened yet. Okay. So we're definitely talking about Yeshua being cut off after 62 weeks. Now he goes on and the angel goes on to say, that the people of the prince who shall come shall destroy the city. So Jerusalem was rebuilt, but at the end of this period of Shemitahs, it'll be destroyed again. The people of the prince who shall come is talking about the Roman people. And, uh, you know, the prince at that, well, we don't know if the prince being spoken of here is one of the Caesars, or if it's talking about the spiritual power, the principality in the air that was over Rome. I think probably the latter, but we're just not told. But the sanctuary, which is the temple and the city, both were destroyed. And its end, now let's keep reading here. We'll go back to um, just quoting the verse. And its end shall be with a flood, and even to the end shall be war. Desolations are determined, 
He shall make a firm covenant with many for one week. Let's stop there. There's a jump in the middle of this. But first, let's look at what he's talking about when he says the end shall be with a flood. Uh, Even to the end shall be war. I think what this is doing is it's fast forwarding for us. The end that was just spoken of was in reference to Jerusalem and the Holy Temple. But here, I think there's a dual meaning. He's talking about not only the end of that city and that temple will be like a flood. There will be a flood of, of assailants which is exactly what happened. The Romans just came in and raised everything. Uh, It wasn't a gradual process. It was all at once. So that end did come with a flood. However, we know from other eschatological prophecies that the final end of the age will also be like a flood. There's the connection to the days of Noah and that flood. And there's the connection to the bowls of wrath, which are poured out over a very short period of time. And Yeshua himself talked about it being like a flood. So uh, it's going to be a disaster that happens very quickly. It's not going to take a really long period of time. And he says, even to the end, there shall be war. Well, yes, war has continued. We've seen war throughout the world, really without ceasing from then until now. And we're going to go into more war. So this statement is very true. And desolations are determined. Um, certainly, we know about the desolation that will occur when the Antichrist goes into the third temple. But it's more than that, because desolation means you take the life away from something. You make it lifeless. And we're doing that to the world with a lot of our practices. But also, there are going to be plagues that decimate a large portion of the world population. There's going to be natural disasters. I mean, as I speak, we've got Hurricane Irma that's following on the footsteps of Hurricane Harvey, and it's just wiping out whole islands and whole cities. So uh, natural disasters are going to cause a lot of desolation as well. I think this is all being lumped into this single statement. So let's look at the next sentence. He shall make a firm covenant. All of a sudden, we've gone from talking about the end of the city and the sanctuary and the end of the age to speaking about some unknown person given the pronoun of he. This is very mysterious. It's cryptic on purpose. We need to uh, make a, a deduction about who this is. He shall make a firm covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the offering to cease. And on the wing of abominations. Uh, well, this is a, tr- a kind of a strange translation here. I think what it really should say, according to most other translations that I've seen, is that on the wing of one of the temple, there will be an abomination that will make desolate. But in any case, we see that on a wing, meaning of the temple of the holy place, there will be a desolation set up by this unnamed character. And then even to the full end that is determined for him shall wrath be poured out on the desolate. What is this talking about? Well, if it was just this and nothing else, we would have a hard time determining it. But the Lord has revealed things about this in other prophetic books. So we can look to the Olivet Discourse, we can look to the book of Revelation, and we can look to some of Paul's writings, and we can see who this is. This is talking about the Antichrist, the final leader of the world empire. He is the one who will make a covenant with many. People often assume that this is a covenant with the Jewish people. They may be involved. In fact, I think they are. But it doesn't say that. It just says a covenant with many. So what I think is being suggested here is that he, as the supposed Messiah of the Jewish people, is going to make a covenant between Israel and many other nations to keep Israel safe from a lot of the insanity that's going to be going on at that time. Remember, this fourth beast kingdom is going to be trampling down the earth. It's going to be crushing everything. And so because the one who probably will be the military genius heading that up is going to be this character, Asher, the Antichrist, and he's the Jewish Messiah, he's very, it seems very clear to me that he would broker an agreement, a peace agreement between his nation and many of the other nations that are involved in that coalition that's taking over everything. That's just what makes sense to me. All right. In the midst of the week. Now, here's an important part. 
because it's talking about the last week. Remember, we had 62 weeks and seven weeks. That equals 69 Shemitahs. But in the beginning, he said 70 Shemitahs. So there's one Shemitah left. So what's happened here is we fast forwarded from the end of the 69 Shemitahs to this 70th Shemitah, which is at the end of the age. There's a gap. There's a big gap from the time of Yeshua being cut off and the city falling. So around somewhere between 33 or 32 AD and 70 AD is when this period starts. Now, some people would say it's when the Messiah was cut off. I think it's when the city and the sanctuary fell that the that the 69 Shemitahs ended because we know from the Jewish reports of that incident that it was a Shemitah year that the temple fell. In fact, they think it was a Jubilee year. So I believe that that was the end of the 69th Shemitah and we are awaiting the beginning of the last, the 70th Shemitah. And in the midst of that last Shemitah, three and a half years in, he, the Antichrist, shall cause the sacrifice and the offering to cease. So we're going to have to have a third temple. It's not built yet, but the implements are ready. The architectural plans are ready. It could go up very quickly. So we're looking for that third temple to go up and they're going to restart the sacrifices. This is talking about the daily sacrifice and the oblations. And the Antichrist will turn on the people that he's supposedly uh, the Messiah to and he's going to break the covenant and he's going to cause the operations of the temple to stop and he's going to desolate it. He's going to put up an abomination. Now, Revelation tells us what this is. He um, he sits in the temple declaring himself to be God. He's probably going to say, I am uh, the most high in the flesh. But he also sets up a statue, an idol of himself that people will have to worship. And this will be in God's holy temple. Wow. Unbelievable. After that point is when the great tribulation begins, according to Yeshua's all of that discourse. And I wish I had time to go through all the different verses that, you know, help us to understand that the great tribulation is in fact, just the last half of that Shemitah. But it is, it's not seven years. And I've talked about this on this podcast before, but there's no seven-year tribulation that is not in the scripture. There is a three-and-a-half-year great tribulation. That's the one that Yeshua talked about. And that's what starts when the Antichrist puts up this abomination of desolation. That's why he said to the people who will be in Jerusalem, flee as soon as you see this desolation occur, because he's going to start persecuting you. This is the beginning of the great tribulation. It's going to be a bad time. you got to get out of there. So he says, flee. Don't go back for anything. Don't wait. Just get out of Dodge. Now, uh, the last thing that the angel tells Daniel is that this person who's desolating God's temple is doomed to be utterly destroyed and that the wrath will be poured out on him and on the rest of those who desolate. So he and all the people that follow him will have the wrath of God poured out on them. That's going to end the 70th Shemitah. So we know that we're looking at a seven year period at the end of the age. But what is going to happen between now and then? We've already talked about the war. We've talked about the fact that the Antichrist is probably going to rise up as a military commander during that time period, during World War Three. And he's going to... Um, uh, to show himself mighty and uh, get more and more power. What else is going to happen before the 70 Shemitah? Well, a lot of really totally insane stuff is going to start to happen. Yeshua talks about it a little bit, um, but there's going to be an increase in natural disasters. There's going to be an increase in people claiming to be anointed. Now, people often misquote this, so be careful. Yeshua said that there will be many who come in my name claiming to be anointed, not claiming to be Christ. So people misread this as meaning there will be a lot of folks running around saying, I'm Jesus. Well, that has happened and it will probably happen more. In fact, I've had someone call me who believed that he was the reincarnation of Yeshua. And uh, he was trying to convince me of that fact. And I told him, get some help because that is absolutely untrue. We know how Yeshua is going to come back. He won't be reincarnated. He won't be born 
as a baby again and grow up again. He's going to come back just how he left, which is from the sky. After his resurrection, he ascended into the clouds and disappeared. And the angel said he'll come back in the exact same way. And then Yeshua himself before that had said, the whole world's going to see me. Let me take you to one of Paul's writings where he talks about the fact that apostasy has to happen first before the end of the world. In, in fact, before the great tribulation. So this is 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 3 and 4. For that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Okay, here we see Paul affirming what we saw in Daniel. He says that day, and he's talking about the day of the Lord, the very end of the age, will not come unless apostasy comes first. Apostasy within the church. He's talking about a great falling away from right doctrines and from true thinking about the scriptures. He's talking about people going off on their own, even though they claim to follow the shepherd, they're not going to be actually listening to him and following him. They're only going to be associating themselves with him. And that goes back to what Yeshua said. Many people will claim to be anointed. So we're going to have a lot of leaders who say they have the anointing. Man, we're, I see that everywhere. Do you guys see that? It's, it's pretty common these days for people to say, I have the claim that I have the anointing. That's what Yeshua was warning us about. It's not that some people don't have the anointing. They do. But when people come claiming that and then they do things that are doctrinally incorrect, when they act in ways that go against the established word, then they do not have the anointing. They have, well, maybe they have an anointing from an unclean spirit, but they don't have the Lord's anointing. It's not the Holy Spirit that's working through them. And this is going to increase. So you've got to be careful. You've got to know the word of God. And we have to be cautious about who we listen to. Just because somebody claims to have a word from the Lord or a mission from the Lord doesn't mean they do. After this apostasy, or as a part of it, the man of lawlessness is going to be revealed. That's just another name for the man of perdition or the Antichrist. He's the one who will go against the law or the Torah of God. At some point during his career, the Antichrist is going to expose his lawlessness and glorify Jews who agree with his reinterpretation of Torah and his changing of the sacred calendar in the Moedim, which are the divine appointments. Quote, With flattery he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. End quote. That's Daniel 11.32. Also, from Daniel 7, verse 25, He'll speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One, He'll attempt to alter times and laws, and they'll be given into his control for a time, times, and half a time. So the time, times, and half a time is three and a half years. That's the Great Tribulation. That's when the people of Yah will be given into the hands of the beast kingdom uh, to be persecuted and executed. But before this, he's going to attempt to get everybody on board with changing the appointed times, with doing away with God's holy days and his calendar and uh, or his, you know, timekeeping devices, we should say. And he's going to wear down the saints by opposing the word of God and trying to redefine Torah. This happened a long time ago, by the way. <laughs> it's just that it's going to be the greatest at the end under the Antichrist. But Paul said the mystery of lawlessness is already at work in his day. So this process of straying from the instructions of God has been happening since uh, really right after the resurrection and the assumption. The falling away from the faith and the redefining of God's word is going to feed in to a larger religious movement that's going to culminate in a one world religious system that takes us back to the pluralism of Rome. All the different religious sects and philosophies around the world are going to converge under one umbrella. And I think that the main organization that's going to facilitate this is going to be the Roman Catholic Church. But that's a topic for another future podcast. The symbolic harlot that we see pictured in Revelation 17 represents the worldwide religious system and the economic system both. And they're centered both together 
in one city called Babel. Throughout history, the religious system and the political system in most nations has been linked together. It's only recently that we've tried to separate the two. But traditionally, there's a symbiosis that occurs. The religious leaders, if there's uh, one main religion over an entire society, then the religious leaders can incite those people against the government. Uh, So they have a lot of power if they have the ear of most of the population. So Mystery Babel, this city or this hub of the worldwide religious system and economic system, will hold a lot of sway over the political and military system that we call the fourth beast kingdom. And that's why she rides the beast. It's showing that she's the one that's holding the reins. However, the beast is going to hate the woman. And so halfway through the 70th Shemitah, the beast kingdom will turn on her and destroy Babel the Great, completely annihilate her, probably with a nuclear weapon. And because the hub will disappear, then the entire system will then be upended. And that's when the Antichrist will make his move, will take the opportunity to set himself up as the object of worship and make everyone in the world worship him. Instead of having pluralism, it's going to all be consolidated under his new religion. The other kings of the beast kingdom are going to cooperate with this. The word says that they will abdicate all power to Asher, the Antichrist believing that he is God in the flesh. So a global dictatorship that's also a theocracy will be in effect for the last three and a half years of the Shemitah. The deceived of the world, most people in the world at that time, will believe that the messianic era has begun. By the way, that last three and a half years is the mark of the beast period. That's when the world at large will believe that Asher is basically taking out the trash And so there can be worldwide peace if they'll only get rid of those who oppose the faith of Asher, who oppose uh, worshiping this man as God and who say, no, he is actually the enemy of the Most High. Those of us who stick to that line of thinking will be the enemy of the new world order. And so uh, Asher will have us hunted down and killed, unfortunately. At the same time that Asher is trying to kill off all of the uncooperative Jews and Christians, he and his false prophet are going to be preparing the world for a war against Yahweh. Now, this period is going to be a period of relative peace for the world. They're going to think that the utopia that they've been looking for is finally being built, that Asher is building up the messianic kingdom, is bringing it a time of great peace and prosperity, and all that remains to be done is to finally get rid of the followers of Yahweh and to beat this false god. They're going to call they're going to say that Yahweh is the bad oppressive deity, which is what the occult has been teaching for thousands of years. But they're going to say that this god and probably he's going to be uh, painted as the leader of an alien species of an extraterrestrial race that wants to use human beings that wants to enslave humanity and keep us from evolving. But the God of Asher will be this good evolved interdimensional being who wants to free humanity and to um, allow us to evolve to our highest, most enlightened state. So they really flipped the script. Um, And they make Yahweh out to be the bad guy when, in fact, it's Satan who said that we should uh, lose our innocence so that we could become like God, knowing good from evil and elevate ourselves to this place of godhood. And all that was just a terrible lie. Okay, I'm almost out of time, but really quickly, I want to talk about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the entire seventh millennium. It's a day of a thousand years. This is why Peter said, don't forget this, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years. So the day of the Lord is the Sabbath millennium. It's the millennium of rest at the end of this whole week of human history. We've been through almost 6,000 years so far, and we're about to go into that seventh millennium. The birthing process of that millennium is going to be very painful. So many times the scriptures say it's like a woman giving birth and having these Um, contractions and they get worse and worse. The world is going to get uh, is going to be in more and more pain leading up to the birth of this 
messianic kingdom or messianic era. But the new life that comes out of that is going to be amazing. So the day of the Lord begins in darkness and gloom and fire and battle. There's a lot of prophecies in the Tanakh that talk about those qualities of the day of the Lord. But then there's also lots of prophecies that talk about the day of the Lord or that day, quote unquote, that day as a time of absolute blessing and prosperity and peace and joy and uh, renewal. Okay, so the, the day incorporates all of that because it begins with the pain and the darkness and then moves into this new thing. What begins the day of the Lord is the resurrection. It's the rapture. It's the marriage of the bride to the bridegroom that we have all been waiting for. And while that's occurring in heaven, the bowls of wrath are going to be poured out on the earth. There will be a string of terrible plagues, which will culminate in the return of Yeshua with the armies of heaven. He won't return until after the marriage and the, uh, the wedding supper has occurred in heaven. But then he takes the armies and he goes to get what, what's rightfully his so that he can bring his bride down to him. So after he wins, he will be enthroned on Zion as king, king of the whole earth, and his bride will join him and they will rule the nations. And immediately he's going to execute some of the remnant of the nations and he'll spare others based upon how they treated his people. You know, Isaiah thirteen twelve says that after the consummation of the times, men will be as rare as fine gold. So many men will die in world war and then die of the plagues that there will only be a small percentage of the world population that lasts long enough to see Yeshua come and be enthroned. And then of those who remain, uh, some portion, probably a relatively large portion, will be executed for their terrible treatment of God's chosen people. Very few people will be left. And in fact, most of those will be women. I can't remember which book it's in, but there's an oracle that says that in that day, several women will take hold of one man and say, let us be your wives. You won't even have to support us, but let, just let us be your wives so that we can have children. In other words, they're willing to accept polygamy and they won't even demand that the, that the man that they marry provides for the normal things of life because their concern is just to have children. There's not enough men to go around and they want to repopulate the world. And so they're going to all, you know, go for the same guys. It's going to be a weird situation. After that, the dragon and the other fallen immortals who follow him will be bound in the abyss while the beast and the false prophet will be resurrected and thrown into the lake of fire. We see at the end of Revelation that the beast and the false prophet are still in the lake of fire after the millennium when everyone else is judged and thrown into the lake of fire. Um, they've been there all along. After Yeshua judges the nations and executes some of them for the way that they treated Israel, a millennial temple will be built. Maybe a tabernacle will be put up first. It's not really clear. Um, or maybe there will be something of the third temple remaining that they use until the new millennial temple goes up. But uh, this, the last several chapters of Ezekiel detail what that millennial temple will be like. It's going to be really awesome. And the righteous will inherit the earth. A healing dew will restore the devastated earth when Messiah arrives to rule, according to 2 Barak 73.2. So most of the earth will be destroyed in fire and in earthquake and some of the other plagues that will happen. Um, the, the earthquakes that are going to happen will be so bad that not even one wall will remain standing. Everything will fall down. The mountains are going to fall. They're going to melt before Yahweh on the day of the Lord. Everything is just going to be shaken and pressed down and burned. And as a result, it's going to be unlivable. But Yeshua is going to restore it. And evidently a healing dew is going to be one of the ways that the earth is restored. And peace and prosperity will go out from Jerusalem and will cover the earth until the end of the millennium. You know, there's far too much for me to cover. This really has only been the tip of the iceberg. We could go on for hours and hours talking about all of the prophetic verses and, and really digging into them and uh, dissecting them. But we can't do that. It's too much for a podcast like this. Uh, 
So I'm working on an exciting resource that I think is going to help you guys to understand all of this as you study it for yourselves. I'm calling it the Prophecy Cheat Sheet, and it's going to be out within the next month or two, probably, Lord willing. So keep an eye for that. If you want to be alerted when that's available, you can go to my website and sign up for my newsletter, and I'll definitely send you uh, an email when all that is ready to go. Unfortunately, we didn't have time today for the Q&A, but I'll make sure that we do that next time. And if you would like to have your question answered, please send me an audio recording of you asking the question to questions at watchmanalexander.com. Again, questions at watchmanalexander.com. And please put your city and your name as the subject line. I'd like you to know that I'm available for hire as a speaker. If you want me to come talk to your congregation or your group, about anything related to prophecy, the end times, or moral excellence, please get a hold of me by going to my website and clicking on the speaking page or typing in the URL watchmanalexander.com forward slash speaking.html. I'm also available as an artist for hire. If you need any graphic designs, uh, book designs, book covers, or 3D graphics done for you, I'm your man. Please reach out to me at admin at watchmanalexander.com. And one last thing, I would really appreciate it if you would rate this podcast, especially on iTunes. Uh, The rating has helped me to become more visible. So if you want me to reach more people, if this podcast has blessed you, please rate the podcast on iTunes. And that wraps up episode nine. So until next time, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Watchmen out.